primary care knowledge boost msk miniseries back pain Hello and welcome everyone to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, we have a little mini series um, coming up for you over the next three releases, um, focusing on um, very common musculoskeletal problems. Um, so we speak to Tom Smith and Charlotte Baker, who are both first contact practitioners and um, specialist MSK physios who work in Wigan. Yes, um, it was opportunistic. I work with both of them and um, they were very, very kind and they both agreed to come on and have a, um, a talk to us about different uh, MSK problems. So the first one that we're going through today is back pain and we'll take a, a fairly standard case uh, to start with and we go over what they're thinking about when they're initially assessing people um, and um, what are the most important things about the history and the red flags and going through all the differentials really. So we're, we're interested in their clinical reasoning essentially. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, we touch a little bit on assessment and investigations, but we don't go into management um, in this um, series, just on the interest of time. And also to make them nice and short and snappy, um, we also dive straight into questions. Um, so no introductions um, on these ones. So we thought we'd cover some uh, targeted a targeted episode on back pain initially, mainly to just see how your brains work in terms of how you assess um, and go through things. So we've put together a, a fairly generic case. Um, so we've got a 36-year-old Valerie. She's got lower back pain and she comes in to see us um, saying that she's had it for a, a couple of months now. It's radiating down her left buttock and she's got some numbness in her left foot. Um, she's had a similar scenario a few years ago, but it wasn't as bad as this. Um, both this episode and the previous episodes came on a few months after the birth of her children. So, yeah, can you talk us through how you'd go about initially assessing her? Yeah, I think we, we get quite a lot of back pain in primary care. So when when we look at our caseloads, it's like 35% of what we clinically see. Um, I think from an assessment point of view, initially we just want to look at the consultation in terms of what communication skills we use. So um, we usually start with you know a few open questions um, to try and ascertain the reasons for attending, basically, and um, find out what the concerns are, what their ideas are, what their expectations are with regards to what they feel like they need. So just getting a thorough narrative, really. We often need to go into a bit more specific detail around bits of information that we're looking for. So we tend to close down questions looking for specifics around sort of onset of symptoms and duration. Um, if there's been any mechanism involved at all, where the location of pain is um, and the behaviour of it. So is it mechanical, non-mechanical in nature, really? We always sort of screen for red flags as well um, as part of the initial assessment so I think we'll probably go a bit a bit more in detail in that one oh yeah yeah we've got a question on that one specifically um I was just gonna uh, follow up with a question about what signs or what symptoms they might describe that would indicate mechanical back pain I suppose the the, the sort of background around mechanical back pain I suppose it's a bit of a modern buzzword really in terms of lots of the presentations we see will be sort of classed as mechanical back pain um, when we look at the structures within the spine there's lots of things in there that can cause pain so it's quite challenging to be 100% accurate with what structures are actually generating pain and whether it's multiple structures um, 
what we're looking at usually mechanical sensitivity like movement related pain as opposed to non-mechanical symptoms which is usually like worse at rest worse at night sometimes eased by movement rather than aggravated by movement lovely yeah thank you and in terms of i'm thinking specifically about back pain um what uh would you be really wanting to elicit in the history with a back pain one as opposed to any of the other joints is there anything else that you specifically ask yeah, we would like screens for a uh, quadriquina syndrome. Um, so we want to know if there's any changes to the bladder and bowel control or any numbness around the bladder or the bowel area. Can they feel the self-wiping when they go to the toilet? Have they noticed any change in the mobility? Maybe like if they're getting any symptoms in both legs at any point, um, we would always screen for quadriquina. Um, also like other red flags as well, have they got any history of cancer in the cells, any unexplained weight loss, have they had any fevers, have they been feeling well? I think with this specific case as well, I'd probably want to know a little bit more about the birth and whether it was a natural delivery, whether she'd had a C-section, whether she was breastfeeding, those kind of questions. So... Bearing in mind that we've only got 10 minutes normally in primary care, we're lucky that we have 15 in our practice. But yeah, most people only have 10 minutes. And um, what's the essential parts of the examination for back pain that you're looking for? I think this is more just a hints and tips rather than a full uh, um, looking for you to give us a full ABC a, assessment. So yeah, any any tips for that? We tend to approach it from like a look, feel, move perspective, really. So We'd be looking at observations like uh, symmetry, deformity, muscle wastage, antalgic positions. Yeah, walking patterns, how they're moving, how they get up from the, the waiting area and walk into your room sometimes. Bony landmarks, all that kind of stuff. Um, any sort of signs of acute inflammation, swelling, bruising. From a movement point of view, we'd usually check movement of the lumbar spine, movement of the hips. Uh, movement of the thoracic spine as well so so we're ruling out sort of proximal and distal joints with this case we would probably want to do a neurological assessment as well because she's she's got some nerve root uh, related symptoms uh, on description so we'd be doing dermatomal sensory testing to light touch uh, myotomes reflexes checking up a motor neuron tests as well um, and palpating around the lumbar spine so feeling for any tenderness, heat, muscle spasm, those types of things. And um, what sort of uh, differentials would be going through your head um, with a case like this? Mechanical back pain, um, maybe with some ridiculous pain, ridiculous symptoms, possibly like pregnancy-related pain, like pelvic girdle pain, uh, low back pain related to like hormonal changes. If she's breastfeeding or she's breastfed for a long time, the hormone relaxing will probably still be in a system which will ca can cause some pain, especially if you've just had a baby. You don't really get much time to like put into your your own health and well-being, so she possibly isn't doing exercise, so it's going to make her a little bit more weaker around that area. Um, lumbar, we said lumbar radicular pain, nerve root-related pain, possible SI joint pain, and then possible inflammatory so trying to rule out axial spondyloarthropathy but we'd probably get a lot of that from the history as to how the pain was behaving as if we were thinking along that along those lines yeah i think with with the, like the nerve root signs we want to check whether there's features of loss of nerve function loss of nerve conduction so we're sort of in a strange way less clinically concerned about the pain experiences but more concerned about 
sensory disturbances, pins and needles, numbness, weakness in the leg, loss of reflexes, those types of things. And yeah, with the inflammatory patterns, we tend to see a non-mechanical presentation. So people tend to be at ease by movement, worse at rest, um, sleep disruption in the sort of early hours of the morning. Sometimes a family history of inflammatory arthropathy as well. Um, and sometimes peripheral features, um, small joint arthralgia, multi-joint symptoms, um, links to inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and uh, psoriasis and ulcerative colitis, that type of stuff. I think we probably want, we, in the history, get a bit more about the patient's social history as well and background. So like if the patient could be have a persistent pain, like a chronic back pain, they may be inactive, they may have like yellow flag signs. So we'd want to get all that in the history so that we could factor that into our clinical reasoning. And then obviously like we've got serious pathology that we have in the back of our mind, but it obviously depends on each individual history. So like any fractures, if she had a trauma, any metastases, if she's got a history of cancer or any worrying features to her symptoms, again, cardiacuana syndrome, and then things like infection, we would want to make sure we'd rule those out and cleared those out. Yeah, perfect. And kind of moving um, on to the next part of a uh, um, normal assessment, is there anything else that you would want to um, to do to assess Valerie further or any investigations that she think you think that she might need um, going forward? I think it depends on, on your examination findings, really. So where we probably would consider investigation would be if there were signs of radiculopathy, so like loss of nerve function. So if we were finding loss of dermatomal sensation or myotomal power loss reflex asymmetry that type of thing then we would be potentially looking towards uh, investigation mri scans um the majority of the time we're not doing a lot of investigations within primary care to be honest so most most people we clinically encounter are mechanical in nature and certainly x-rays don't make a lot of sense um like they're not we don't find them particularly helpful for diagnostic purposes. Um, they can be potentially a negative influencing factor in terms of increasing patient anxiety and encouraging withdrawal from active management strategies and things like that. So we, we tend to refer on to secondary care services if, if we think there's uh, a need for MRI scan, basically. Um, a lot of the time we'll, we'll sort of implement a period of watchful wait as well. Um, to monitor symptoms over a time period and see whether there's uh, some kind of positive change from therapy interventions. And then I'm guessing we're thinking along the lines of something inflammatory um, from the history, then we would go down the route of um, looking for that. Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, we do occasionally encounter like, inflammatory back pain and it tends to be notoriously hard to diagnose and usually people with it have had quite an extended uh, journey before they reach a clinical diagnosis as well so yeah if, if there's a suspicion we we do investigate with bloods even though the outcomes of the bloods don't usually change the the referral so even in the in the sort of occurrence where uh, there's no inflammatory raised inflammatory markers we would usually still refer them on to rheumatology for an opinion anyway it would go off like the behaviour of the pain and if it followed an inflammatory pattern and any risk factors, like family history, psoriasis, and then we'd still refer it to rheumatology with or without the bloods, wouldn't we? Yeah, because if the symptoms are unreassuring, then they need to be checked out. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. 
Um, you mentioned yellow flags. Will you talk us through them? The the yellow flags, we always think of sort of risk factors from a, a chronicity point of view. So um, the patients can have quite strong beliefs around causality of back pain. They can have other factors like passive negative coping. So tendency to withdraw from physical activity and um, sort of being afraid to move, kinesiophobia, can all be sort of yellow flags that make managing mechanical back pain quite complex. Um, Employment is on that list, I think, isn't it? So um, people who are out of employment long term uh, are significantly less likely to return to full-time employment. Um, And there can be other influencing factors like family and friends sort of reflecting negative thoughts and opinions and um, being both positive and negative, I suppose, from that that perspective. So they're just factors that would increase the likelihood of someone having long-term pain. Particularly with this case, obviously having a baby can can sort of cause a lot of stress, anxiety, you know, postnatal depression. So I'd be asking questions around that, particularly for this patient, uh, just to see if there's any any sort of behaviours that man uh, cause a pain to be worse. And obviously if she had a history of chronic low back pain, it could have sort of, the yellow flags can contribute to that, make a pain worse. I think it helps us in our decision making as well. So for example, with this patient, if we thought she would benefit from physio, and we did think there was a number of yellow flags we, flags. we can direct that to like a more senior physiotherapist who's got a bit a bit more specialism in chronic pain. Yeah, okay, yeah. So it helps us decide on what, if we are going down a physio route, who we may send it to. Mm-hmm. So uh, yellow flags in general are um, areas in the sort of biopsychosocial yeah. kind of features that would make um, their recovery possibly more prolonged they're more at risk of of not getting better from this pain and suffering from chronic pain yeah and probably like pain perceptions and pain levels as well yeah i think it's it's complicated and again like from a medicine point of view we're still sort of slowly coming to terms with the fact that pain experiences are a lot more complex than just a biomedical model really um and any way we can positively influence people's journey to recovery is good so as well as saying like we refer to physio, we might also include like community link workers, mental health practitioners, because if, if there is an element of, like I say, a biopsychosocial element, we want to uh, manage that patient as a whole because the pain will probably improve a lot better if they're getting, if they say they're under mental health services or they're under the community link workers, whatever it is they may be struggling with. Yeah. Just um, just thinking that you've mentioned Cotta Aquina a few times um, as we've been speaking um, and I wonder if it's worth us just taking um, a bit of a moment um, just to speak specifically about it, the red flags, um, referral um, and maybe some safety netting around it because I know that that's one of the things with back pain that people um, worry about quite a lot. Yeah, so I think probably one of the most important is your Cotta Aquina syndrome, red, red flags um, and being you know, finding out if they've had any changes to the bladder or bowel control, any numbness around the bladder or the bowel area, like we said before, um, and making sure that they go down the, the pathway correctly. So if they've um, we've got the girth pathway that we follow, um, so if they've had the symptoms, the bladder or bowel symptoms, bilateral leg symptoms, for less than two weeks, we would send it to it straight to A&E with a letter and contact A&E and inform them that we're 
sending the patient and we'd explain to that patient the importance of attending and the consequences of not attending, which can lead to obviously permanent bladder or bowel dysfunction, permanent loss of strength in the legs and poor mobility. And we have had um, odd cases where we've had to do that. We've probably sent patients to A&E and it's not been cordial but it's better to send them if we suspect it um, than not. But we have had cases where it has been cordial and then they've been blue lighted to, well, it's Salford for us, isn't it, for emergency surgery. So it, it is vital that those symptoms get picked up and get action quickly because there is a small window of reversing it with surgery. It's, it's caused by a, usually a central disc prolapse. So um, there's a risk of permanent injury to some of the sacral nerve roots that supply the bladder and the bowel and the genital organs and sexual function can be diminished can have permanent pins and needles and numbness loss of bowel control and difficulty emptying the bladder so the sort of negatives if it's not picked up can be quite life devastating really and it does need urgent action like ideally to, if in a in an actual case of cordial compression decompression within 24 hours if they've had the symptoms longer than two weeks so we would send it as an urgent referral to our like cat service or secondary care and we'd we'd be, make it known that we were sending it urgently and that's just like i said following the girth pathway so it's called girth girth yeah it's getting it right first time yeah no that's really useful um but um just thinking for you know you said you'd do a neurological assessment for valerie would that include a pr if there was a suspicion of cordial syndrome when you look at the guidance a pr exam does need to be performed at some stage um but they're not recommending it within primary care so if they had symptoms that would make us suspicious of cordial syndrome we usually refer down an emergency pathway and it's performed along with other things like ultrasound scans of the bladder and MRI scans of the lumbar spine. So you're not having multiple different professionals assessing, yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's a thought process about does it influence your, your, your referral? So would you be inappropriately reassured by minimal findings on a PR exam? Um, so they don't recommend it within primary care, basically. Yeah. It's probably important to mention, say, how important the safety netting is, is as well. Obviously, when you examine that patient on that day, if you don't suspect it's cause required, that you make them fully aware of what to do if anything changes. Because you don't want them just sitting waiting for an appointment in primary care. You want them to lo- sort of go straight to A&E. So we would often give them a safety net them verbally and then give them resources to take away for them to look at if they'd if the symptoms did change so that they knew exactly what, what to do. Yeah, there's some good sheets on that where they've got the red flags there for cordial Yeah, yeah, lovely. Um, so um, resources that you use, you've mentioned about getting it right first time. Um, what are the other things that uh, you'd use either yourselves as professionals or for patients? We use the MACP cordial guidelines because that comes in loads of different languages, doesn't it? Yeah, the uh, the it's a cordial syndrome red flags handout basically for patients. Oh, nice. Okay. And we would document all that as well. You know that we'd explained to the patient if they develop these symptoms to attend any, explain the consequences, and followed it up with some that paper guidance. We've got the nice guidelines for back pain and sciatica as well. So certainly from a clinical perspective, they're particularly helpful to make sure that we're managing things appropriately and 
making appropriate onward referrals where necessary. Then there's a national back pain pathway as well, which is under constant development, I suppose, over the last five to ten years. And again, there's pretty much guidance around most back pain presentations, most more sinister pathologies as well with that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Wonderful. So um, sort of um, finishing on top tips or learning points, anything that you wanted to highlight from your experiences with managing patients with back pain? That it's really important we rule out red flags and cauda requirement syndrome and rule out any significant neuro- neurological deficit. We don't routinely image unless it's indicated. Again, that might be if we're thinking someone's got an osteoporotic fracture, we might investigate in primary care. I think that that's that's probably the one scenario where we would x-ray, isn't it? But for the most part, we don't really find x-rays particularly helpful. Um, if, we're, if we're sort of going down a route of further investigation, it tends to be MRI via secondary care pathways, really. Um, and yeah, I suppose for me, I, I always feel like I need to sort of rule out, rule out anything sinister. So know your red flags, check your red flags. Um make sure there's not a significant neurological deficit. At that point, I'm reasonably comfortable. And yeah, safety net thoroughly around it as well. So there are cases where they get deteriorating symptoms for whatever reason. Um, it's not always serious pathologies, but we we will review anybody at any stage, really, if, if they're having a worsening sort of trajectory of symptoms. I think our documentation as well. I think documenting thoroughly when you've got anyone with back and leg pain is really, really important. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, thank you both so much. That's been wonderful. Thank you. Um, so really lovely to um, for me to meet Tom and Charlotte anyway. Um, I know that you've met them before, obviously, Sarah. But what, um, what was your takeaway from um, this nice little snappy chat about back pain? Yeah, I liked them going through their differentials. Um, I was interested when Charlotte said that she'd ask about breastfeeding and thinking about the the back with um, changes in pregnancy and after after delivery and the hormones relaxing the area and making things more painful. Um, so that's not something that I, I, I see it a lot, but I, know, I don't know if I often appreciate that that's a differential. I thought that was really good. Um, another differential that we talked about off mic actually was a really interesting and rare case that they had of somebody presenting with a quite a similar history um, who had had, um, who was a much older woman actually, and um, on examination um, because they're really good at kind of making sure that patients got everything um, sort of that they're examining the dermatomes and things like that. If it's a sciatica, um, she was just in little shorts and they could see a real, really obvious colour change in one of her legs and it was a critical limb ischemia um, and she did have quite a significant cardiovascular history. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting off mic. They've got so many example cases of very important uh, and rare things as well as some of the more um, common garden things that we could across as well yeah definitely and I think it was it was really nice um to go through um kind of the 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 difference in mechanical and non-mechanical back pain um and what that might actually present like in the history and then like you say going through those really important red flags um and just listing them off um so that it's nice and important to remember um and then the um the look feel move kind of approach to um to assessment you kind of forget when you're doing it all the time I guess that there's a process to it but I just breaking it back down to look feel move it's like oh yeah that is how you do an MSK assessment um I just thought that they explained it really nicely yeah 
I agree. I was I was really happy with that. And I, I quite liked um, them going through some of the different ways in which they assess and triage because they sort of are much more aware of the processes and systems around. Um, really liked the, uh, the focus on red flags and cordura equina and safety netting. Um, and yes, speaking about red flags, I thought it was really useful for them to go through yellow flags as well and talk about um, those risk factors for um, long-term um, pain and problems ongoing. I just thought that was really nice overview from them as well. Uh, thanks very much for um, for listening. We have two more of these coming up. So we're going to talk about um, shoulder pain um, and then knee pain. So keep an eye out for those. We can get in touch in all the usual ways if you want to give us any feedback. And we'll put the links in the episode description. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Greater Manchester Integrated Care and the Greater Manchester Training Hub. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This episode was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2024. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links we may have mentioned in the episode.